This morning we're continuing. Remember, the issue is how our, how our obedience, how our life impacts our fellowship with God. That's the issue we're talking about this morning, how our fellowship is impacted by our lives. That's what we're talking about this morning. And so you remember last week, John dealt with the issues that essentially speaking, it doesn't matter how I live. I have a relationship with Christ. I have fellowship with God. It doesn't matter how I live. You know, there is teaching out there that believes that if you think you're saved, you're saved. Did you just hear me? If you think you saved, you are saved. Whether or not there's any proof and whether that proof is according to biblical standards. And so the apostle says in the five verses five to ten in last week's lesson, he corrects this false doctrine that the way we live has no bearing upon our fellowship with God. He says, if you are living in a way that doesn't comport with the character and the nature of God as revealed in his word, if we are living in a way that does not comport, is, does not line up with the nature and character of God as declared in his word, do we see that? Did you get it? Everybody got that. As declared where? In his word. And you say that you're living that way and you have fellowship with God, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Does that what, is, isn't that what John says? Now, thankfully, John isn't one of these folks who is very more concerned about the feeling of people and the integrity of God. It doesn't mean he attacks folks. But what it does mean, he, like the other apostles, and you see this in, especially in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, you know, if there's another gospel, if you believe something contrary to what has been written in the word of God, if you believe that, you're listening to another gospel. And he says, if you believe another gospel, you're condemned. Remember that? You're accursed. And so these men strongly stood for the veracity, for the truth, for the unshakableness, for the unchangeableness of the word of God. Today, the church, well, not only today, but for years, the church has been bombarded by liberal thinkers to say, you know what? We have to conform to some of the world's ways because the Bible is thinking about another culture, another day, whatever. And these things simply today don't apply. Isn't that what we're being heard? Isn't that what we're hearing? Is that the truth? Our answer to that is not to debate, but just to say, you're a liar. You're a liar. Why? Because you're saying something contrary to what God himself has said. You're a liar. So he shows them that if they're walking in darkness, they're lying if they say have fellowship with God. And so remember in verse 9, he says, look, if we say we have no sin in verse 8, if we say we don't have sin, either... I'm not sinning, I don't believe in sin, whatever the way they say it. 
He said, the only remedy to that is verse 9. What does verse 9 say? If we confess our sin, in other words, if we confess that we are sinners, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from. Now, look, how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. Do You see, God cannot cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and you still have a little bit of unrighteousness in you. Do we see that? When God says, I cleanse you in Christ from all unrighteousness, how much unrighteousness has he cleansed you of? How much? All of it. In other words, all of our unrighteousness has been born to the cross on the shoulders of the Son of God. And when he said, it is finished, what verse is that? John 19, verse 30. That means this, all of the unrighteousness of my people has, has been paid for fully, and God no longer considers us in relation to us having unrighteousness in ourselves. We are now reconstituted as new creatures. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We are either new or we're not new. There's no middle ground there. Now, that's the strong teaching. Why? Because what John is doing is he is establishing once again that we are built on the rock of relationship in Christ. Our unity in Christ is a completed, solid, kept work of Almighty God in Christ. Amen? So now the issue that we're dealing with is no longer, are we saved? Am I going to not be saved? That's no longer the issue. That has been settled at the cross. The issue now, what about my fellowship with God? Do we see that? I keep hammering it in because one of the devil's most effective tactics to believers is to accuse us when we sin. Are you really saved? Have you lost your salvation? What do you have to do? Listen, what do you have to do in order to get back into God's good grace? Don't we think like that sometimes? So what do we have to do to get back into God's good grace? Nothing. Christ has brought us into God's good grace and keeps us there. Can you say amen? amen. So this morning we're going into chapter 2. And we're going to be talking a little bit about as an overview verse, first two verses. And then next week we'll go into verses 1 and 2 in a little more detail. In this block of verses, chapter 2, 1 to 17, John is going to now turn his attention from the unbelievers. We can walk any way we want. We don't have sin. Remember, Jesus isn't divine. Remember, the unbelievers, verses 5 to 10, that's their theology. He's going to turn his attention. Now, I've dealt with the unbelievers. I've dealt with the problem in the church. Now, let me turn my attention to dealing with how to be maintained in fellowship, to deal with those issues in our lives, those practical, moral, doctrinal issues in our lives that have something to do with the way we fellowship with one another as we fellowship with God, correct? That's what he's dealing with. It's a function of the relationship. It won't be the relationship itself. So he reminds them, in verses 1 to 2, he begins this way. Let me start 
once again, with the concrete security of a believer. Let me start there. So they are secure in Christ in verses 1 and 2, chapter 2. They are secure in Christ. Why? Because Jesus is their advocate who has paid the full penalty for all their sin. Make sure you hear this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, make sure you hear this. But hear everything. Our security in Christ is the person and work of Christ himself. Did you get that? I am a believer secured for eternity because of the person and work of Christ himself that has been applied to me or given to me by the Holy Spirit with which I have agreed or which I have received. Amen? So why are we secure in Christ? Because of Jesus. How are we secure in Christ? Because of Jesus. How could we receive this security in Christ? Because of Jesus. Who holds us forever? Jesus. Do we see that? Okay. I am not secure because anything about me, for me, or whatever about me has anything to do with our security. If it did, we wouldn't remain secure for 10 seconds after we got saved. So let me read verses 1 and 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Are you following me in your book? And if anyone, what? Sins. This is one of the most important two verses in the Bible. I'm writing these things to you that you, what? May not sin. Remember, we don't have sin. It doesn't matter. So you see why he's dealing with that. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, Steve, if you do sin, Wendy, if you do sin, Pam, if you do sin, if we do sin, what? what what's going to happen? What, what happens, Ray, if I sin? You see, because he's just told them if they're sinning and they say they have fellowship, they're lying. Well, I, I still have sin in myself, Ronnie. I'm sorry. Moose, I still have sin in my life. Called you the wrong name. I can't. Moose. If I have sin in my life, then what's going on? If we do sin, what? We have an advocate with the Father. Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the what? Propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is our standing. This is our standing. These two verses, I must insist that you learn them. Because every time you and I sin and we are attacked by Satan as to our guilt and begin to be worried about our standing in Christ and what's going to happen and all that, you must repeat these verses to yourself and to Satan face to face with his lies. Amen? So what happens? 
I'm still struggling with sin. Does, does anyone in here ever stop sinning completely? Anyone in here? No, no one. How many of us commit purposeful sin? Not inadvertent. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize I sinned. How many of us commit or continue to commit purposeful sin? Raise your hand. Come on. Any, anybody not committing purposeful sin? Any of you sinning by accident? Every one of us commits purposeful sin. If it were an issue of our continuing to commit purposeful sin, none of us could ever be saved to the end. Do we get that? Now, am I saying it this way so it doesn't matter how you live? You know, you can, we're saved in no way, no way. We'll see the difference, but we will emphasize what we're, we'll emphasize where we are. Every one of us who are saved continue to commit purposeful sin. We purposefully think this. We purposefully feel that. We purposefully go there. We do things that we know dishonors God. Can you say amen? Every one of us does it regularly. If that's the issue of maintaining my salvation, Bo, you ain't got a chance in hell. Is that all right to say that? You don't have a chance. So what happens when I'm convicted of sin? I have an advocate with the Father. Correct? You need to learn these two verses. Now, John addresses the issue of their security in view of the presence, of, again, of their sin. All of us are sinning. They know that. Do you see why he has to do this? He's just told this other group within the church. Look, there's a group in this church that believes that it doesn't matter if they sin. They still have fellowship. And somebody else is saying we don't really have sin, you know, and all that. John says, look, we'll deal with that. That's a lie, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What about those of us who know we sin and we continue to sin? What about us? What about us? So he sets the doctrinal foundation for their security in verses 1 to 2. Do you understand what happens and how this letter is being written and the structure and the flow of this letter? You see, these two verses reveal the extraordinary length. Because what happens often is, and I wasn't going to do this, and I just felt the Lord changed my direction this week. When we read these two verses, we can go ahead and read them and go on to other verses, correct? When we read these two verses... We need to all of a sudden feel like we've just hit a monument. I remember years and years ago in 56, when our family was driving up to New York. And we went to Chattanooga on the way up. Now, some of you may remember, and I don't know what road we took or you take, but you're taking the highway and you make a turn. And when you do, the bluff is way up here. And then you see Chattanooga down there. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Oh. <gasps> I'll never forget the sight. It was in the evening and turning there, and there's Chattanooga. It's like, good night, look at this. I mean, the highest hill we had been on is Monkey Hill. <laughs> and, and when we got to the top of it, we were breathless, and the air was thin. 
<laughs> Some of you don't know what Monkey Hill is. Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> I hear that. These two verses reveal the extraordinary length to which God has gone. We would think to save us. Correct? Right? Let's think primary first. And then let's add secondary to it. Can you say amen? Let's think primary first. These two verses reveal the extraordinary length to which God has gone to maintain and fulfill his original intention in creation. That's what these two verses are about. Primarily, it's about God. It's about God. We are the secondary. Do you remember this? And can you recall this? And can we remember the continue to live this way? In these two verses, the Holy Spirit gives us two truths that we need to know in order for us to first be saved and then for us to be able to grow in our fellowship with God. There are two truths, at least two, in these two verses that I want to accentuate. The first verse, uh, first truth, this is the way we're saved. The second one, this is the way we fellowship. That's what's in this verse, at least those two. So first of all, what do we, what do we find here? The first truth is this, the intensive and extensive effects of sin. I don't know whether there is one major weakness. Jacob. How many of you know Jacob? This is Jacob who just came in. Good to see you. Good to see you, young man. I don't know what the main issue or if there is such a thing as the weakness, Charles, in the church. You know how people say the main we I don't know. I don't know if there is. But I do know this, and I'll speak about myself. I'll speak about me. One of the biggest weaknesses in my life used to be, and I have to say used to be because even though they, it, it, I haven't come to the place of not sinning anymore, the Lord really dealt with this issue. And that is this. My small understanding of the effects of sin. When we sin. How do you feel about it? If when we sin. When our thoughts go awry. When our feelings go the wrong way. When we are responding to other people. Listen to me carefully. Listen to me. When we sin for whatever category, think of the category that you're struggling in. One of the primary ways of determining whether you have an unbiblical or at least a very weak understanding of what sin is to God. Is the excuse that you're going to give for sinning. Anybody experience that? Yeah, Cody, I'm angry with that. Yeah, but you know what they did to me. Let me tell you why I'm angry. Yeah, I know it's wrong, but let me tell you why. 
So dishonoring to God. So dishonoring to God when we have any excuse. May I repeat that word? When we have what? What? Say it again. Any excuse for our sin. There are reasons for sinning. This happened, that sinning. But there's no excuse for sinning. When we have any reason, or sorry, excuse for sin whatsoever, we have a, an ungodly, low, man-centered, man-pleasing, man-exalted view of sin. If we felt about sin the way Jesus felt about sin, I believe our activity of purposeful sin would fall like a rock, would sink like a rock. But we see so much turmoil of sin in our lives because we simply do not understand and view or feel about sin the way God himself does. Well, that's God. No, we have his Holy Spirit in us. And so here's one of the remedies for that. Write it down. If you have any weakness in this area, write this down. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you his view of sin. How many of us have ever asked that? Wow, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. You know, huh, that's a new one. Good. Then write it down. Ask God. Ask God. I want to know. I need to know your view of sin. So how intensive inside, how intensive is sin? Remember that? Ezekiel 1830. The person who sins what? You're dead. That's how intensive sin is inside of us. You're dead. It isn't that, you know, you're in trouble, you got a problem, you won't be happy, you won't get your blessings, and you did. The ultimate payment for sin is what? Death. And the only payment for sin is what? Death. The ultimate payment and the only payment for sin is what? Death. There are consequences. If I go out and rob a bank today, I, okay. I repent, but I still will go to jail. But the penalty and payment is death, which I don't pay because another person paid for that at the cross. There's not an aspect of my soul. There's not an area of my mind. There's not an area in my feelings or emotions, my thoughts, my whatevers that has not been corrupted by sin. Do we see that? Sin has completely permeated us. It touches every and any aspect of my being as a person. What about the extensive? Romans 3, 9. I mean, you know, how extensive is sin in the world? All are under sin. How many? As it is written, there is what? 
Is this in your book? No. How many righteous? None. Did you get that? Paul said. So let me repeat it to you. No. Not. One. Can you hear him say none are righteous? And someone said, well, you know, I don't know. What about no, not one? Do you hear it? He's writing this, and I, I think the Holy Spirit says, someone just objected, so put this down. No, not one. Teacher, you ever do that? Say something, and you knew, and you go back and emphasize it again? There is none who understands. How many? None understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Oh, the world is looking for God. Oh, the world wants Jesus. We just have to tell them. That's a lie. I hear evangelists say all the time, people are thirsty for God. They're not thirsty for God. Have you read the word of God? Nobody wants Jesus unless the Holy Spirit produces in that person the wanting. Right, Bob? No one. So you don't go share the gospel. Oh, I know you want. I know you have. I know you. No. You're not teaching the gospel, Christian. You're teaching a man-centered issue, which isn't God-pleasing and God-honoring. Are you with me this morning on this? Man, this is narrow. Thank God Jesus said what? How much is the way? Narrow. And only a few going in that way. The other way is what? Broad. And most go that away. See, this is why I don't like the teaching of that church over there. Because they're so bigoted and narrow-minded. And they're so un- Yes. We're on God's plane here. We're God's people. We are not people of this world any longer as far as our association and friendship and fellowship. Amen. We are related to the God of glory. We're not related anymore to the God of this world. Verse 12. All have turned aside. How much? Together they have become useless. There is none who do good. Well, I know somebody did good. I remember some. some. Did, you not, did you not hear I said no, not one. Do you hear it again? No one does good. I can hear all the objections from the people who are reading this from Paul. Well, but I, Paul, what do you mean? I mean, well, what do you mean by good? What he means by good is just drop one of the O's out of good and you have the meaning. No one does God. Well, if you put it that way. Right, Eddie? If you put it that way. Well, that's how God puts it. Remember the lawyer who came up to Jesus? Good teacher. Why you call me good? There is what? No one good except God. Well, why did he say that? Because you see, this young man was coming not from a spiritual revelation, but from a natural understanding of just the nice things Jesus is doing. And he's trying to butter him up anyway. So good teacher, how you like that? You're really, I like you, lady. You're, you're so, you're, you're, you're service of the church. He said, ain't nobody good. If you're looking at me, Jesus says, as a natural man, you're wrong. Right? Just drop the, one of the O's out of good and you have the answer. Can we begin to do that when we use this word good? It means it's such a nice word. Satan redefines terminology. 
And the difficulty and the problem with the church is that we swallow those redefinitions and begin to use them as if they are God's definitions. Can you be careful out there? How many of you, and we struggle with this. Well, I know someone who's done this and this and this and this and this and this, and I I wouldn't even do that. Yes, you might not be doing it. And this, you mean to tell me that person isn't saved? How many of us think that occasionally? Come on, come on, come on. We can struggle. It's okay to struggle with these things. But doctrinally, is it accurate? Can you imagine how narrow-minded this is? Do you see why the world hates it? The other aspect in this, these two verses, is the unimaginable length to which God has gone to redeem his creation from sin. Why has God done this? Why has God gone to such a length to redeem his creation from sin? Because in order to fulfill his original intention, he must redeem his creation from sin. Do we make sure to get the primary, the primary, and not make the secondary, the primary? Okay? Why has Jesus come? To bring glory to the Father through being our Redeemer. See, God has gone to the most extreme length to bring about a new creation in which there would be no sin so that he and his people would dwell in eternal fellowship. Genesis 1:26. image bearers. We are those who dwell in fellowship with God forever. That's the only way to be an image bearer. We must be in him who is the image of God in order to be image bearers. So who is the image of God? He is the image of the invisible God. Who? Jesus. What verse did I just quote? Colossians 1.15. Thank you. So read this in Revelation 21.3. Behold, the tabernacle. This is at the end of the days. This is the end time. This is the fulfillment. Jesus has returned. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. Emmanuel. Remember that? God with us. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's the fulfillment of Genesis 1.26. That's where it's fulfilled. Why? When Jesus returns to receive unto himself and bring before the Father this family of people for whom he has died, so that the Father may have his original intention to have a family with whom he and they will fellowship in mutual glory. Amen? That's the gospel. So when we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, again, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel. What's the gospel? Of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you want to know what the gospel is in its essence to God, the glory of Christ, the gospel in its essence is not Something about me and God has saved me and the grace that came to me and Jesus and I did this and he did that. The gospel is the glory of Christ. The way it is worked out and manifested and fulfilled is all the other. Amen. Are we beginning to get a distinction here and a clarity and an understanding of God's purpose? I always fight for that. Because I find so much emphasis on humanity in the church. 
We talk about a man-pleasing, people-pleasing, people-oriented church. Too often, too many churches, and to some extent, yes, in this church and so on, in me and all of us, we are too people-oriented. Amen? The more we are God-oriented, the more God will be glorified, and the more we will be conformed to the image of uh, God's Son. What was this extreme measure? What is this extreme measure to bring about Genesis, the fulfillment of Genesis 1-1, really, and then Genesis 1-26 as God expresses the purpose? The incarnation. Do you have John, John 1-14 down there? Is that in your notes, John 1-14? Okay. How many of you know what John 1-14 says? Can anybody quote it? Here's again. If this were a class, I would fail you on these verses. No, 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 I would. I would fail you. We have an enemy out here who wants to destroy the glory of God in us. And we must be able to be armed with the word of truth to combat him. Amen. This is a warfare. Not just something we can kind of, if you get a chance, can you learn it? John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a tremendous statement of the incarnation. You see, God has sent his beloved son. Remember, in the wilderness, Jesus is baptized comes out of the water, you are my beloved son. God has sent his beloved son to be the payment for our sin. Why? So that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's from Romans 8, 21. What is the glory of the children of God? Christ in us. The hope of glory. We in him. The hope of glory. We have become relationally united in him and with him. The hope of glory. And the manifestation is the fellowship that is experienced and expressed within God himself among the three persons of God is now being expressed and experienced among us. Do we see that? That's the connection. It's not God's fellowship and ours. It's God's fellowship manifested through ours. Use a different preposition. Why did God send his son? In verse 119, we read that God is faithful and righteous. Well, God is faithful. How many of us know? God is faithful. God is faithful. Thank God for his faithfulness. We always thank God for his faithfulness. But to what is he faithful? Ask the average believer. Okay. Is God faithful? Amen, brother. Yes, I agree. You said it right. What is he faithful? Well, he's faithful to do this, and he's faithful to help me here. And he's faithful. Is he? Yes. Can we deny that? Anybody can say that God has not been faithful to you? How many of you still in Christ? Faithfulness. <laughs> you know, we base what we think is God's faithfulness on our experiences. <laughs> Our faithfulness, our experience of God's faithfulness, you're still saved. You're still walking with Christ, right? 
That's how you know he's faithful to you. But is that the essence of his faithfulness? His faithfulness to me and to us is secondary. It is the fruit of a primary faithfulness. God is faithful to himself. He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to manifest who he is in himself to creation. He's faithful to show that the Father, before the foundation of the world, has chosen us in Christ to be adopted as his children, correct? Right? He's faithful to show that the Son, whom, who loves the Father and the Father loves the Son, therefore he's faithful to declare that intra-Trinitarian love within, intra-Trinitarian love through the Son's incarnation and atoning sacrifice at the cross. He's faithful to that. He's faithful to show the love of the Holy Spirit to the Father's will as carried out by the Son to apply all the good of the work of Christ in his earthly ministry to us, his undeserving people. He's faithful. So when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, I know we think about things in our lives, correct? And you should, correct. But all of that shows a deep faithfulness in God to who he is and to his great, eternal, blessed will to declare himself, to manifest himself to us, in us, among us, and through us. You have to get your prepositions right. We would do well to ponder these two verses. To allow the Holy Spirit. To ask and to allow the Holy Spirit. And then to embrace. What do these two verses say about my sin? How am I considering sin in me? Because I sure as you know what don't like it in that one. That person there. But we're so forgiving and understanding about our home. Hmm. Well, you don't understand. This is why. Ah, so dishonoring to God. Why don't you just tell God to shut up and sit down? Well, you are. You just soon do it because that's be better to do it that way. I don't need to hear from you. I know what's better. That's what we're doing. 
we do well to ponder these verses. To see the extraordinary length that God has gone. His faithfulness. His righteousness. To first create. Genesis 1.1 is the most extraordinary verse of God's glory and purpose and faithfulness and righteousness. Because everything in this Bible, everything is declared in Genesis 1.1. That's the acorn from which the tree springs. We'd be well to ponder that, those verses. And to remember God's faithfulness, the Father's faithfulness to the Son, the Son's faithfulness to the Father, the Father's Son's faithfulness to the Spirit, the Spirit's faithfulness to the Son, the Father, all of that to declare this intra-Trinitarian fellowship of love that into which we have been drawn by the Spirit and is now to be manifested in us. That's where the glory of God is manifested. Amen. Let's remember these verses and ponder them. Next week, we'll get into the details of the verses.